Now let's come to God in prayer ourselves as we come to hear from his word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you asking that you would soften our hearts to receive your word with joy. Fill us with a new and steadfast spirit, instructing and guiding us as we open your word today. You know each one of us so that the motivations of our hearts are laid bare before your holy presence. Holy Spirit, renew us and lead us to an unwavering allegiance to Jesus and a deep desire to glorify you every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, today I want to introduce you to Naaman. Naaman is the commander of the Syrian army. He's a man whose presence demands respect. He's a man who speaks and people jump to his attention and and they follow his orders. The Bible describes Naaman as a great man, a great man and one of high favour and courage. Dig a little deeper and we soon discover that he may even be a pleasant fellow, this this Naaman. Naaman means to be pleasant. It means to be delightful. It means to be surpassing in beauty, actually. Surpassing in beauty. The problem for Naaman is that he's labelled in the scriptures a metzorah. Can you say metzorah? Metzorah. Metzorah is a Hebrew word and uh, it's it's used for someone with a chronic skin disease. Absolutely devastating and chronic skin disease. Usually metzorah is translated as leper. But it doesn't always mean that. So metzorah, chronic skin disease know that that's what it means when you read of someone in the, in the Old or New Testament who's said to have leprosy. Now, a new friend, Naaman, also shows up in the New Testament. Do you remember Jesus talking about Naaman? It's in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus preached his first sermon at Nazareth and uh, he was preaching to people who had hardened their hearts to Jesus and his words and he finishes off his... Uh, sermon and he says, there were many in Israel with skin diseases, many metzorahs in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. Not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And the point Jesus makes is that God's own people back at that time were struggling with chronic skin diseases. It wasn't just Naaman, God's people, his covenant people were struggling with this, but no one, not one of them, turned to God for cleansing and healing. Only one person, a foreigner, showed up for cleansing and was healed. And that was Naaman, the Syrian commander. Which begs the question, how is it that Naaman, who bowed down and sacrificed to idols and false gods, the god Rimon in Syria, how is it that he came to be cleansed by the power of the Lord Almighty? Someone witnessed to him. Someone witnessed to him. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. You've got to love the simplicity of this event. Naaman found himself at the prophet Elisha's house in Israel simply because a young girl opened her mouth and set everything in motion. She had the courage 
to bear witness to the mighty acts of God. This young Israelite girl could have dug her heels in, couldn't she? She could have kept her mouth shut. I mean, she had been taken from her family in Israel in a raid that Naaman would have been responsible for and carried off to be a slave girl for Naaman's wife. I mean, why isn't she seething? Why isn't she really angry, praying that God might afflict Naaman even more as a Metzorah? Why isn't she bitter about her situation? Why is it that instead of working uh, to pray against Naaman, that she wants to see him healed and cleansed by the power of God? This little servant girl from Israel, this little captive girl, has something that the great and respected people in this passage of Scripture and every generation throughout history need to learn. I mean, we don't even know this girl's name but we know she had confidence in the Lord. We know that she had confidence in His purposes. We know that she had trust in His provision for her. Confidence, trust. She was obedient to the Word of God in loving her neighbour. Confidence, trust, obedience. And she had grace and love, amazing grace and amazing love, even for the man who was responsible for her captivity and being ripped out of her family and carried off as a slave. So when this little servant girl, when she lashed out, she lashed out in love. Friends, what can we learn? What can we learn from this unnamed, captive little servant girl in Israel? What can we get from her? What can we take from what she did? I mean, her witness landed Naaman in the land of Israel ready for an encounter with the living God. Think about your own life. Think about your own calling. Who might God be calling you to reach out to in the name of Jesus? Shall we strike the might? Who is God calling you to reach out to in the name of Jesus? I'm reading a book at the moment. It's called The Trellis and the Vine. It's a book about ministry and uh, in this book I read a quote this week from an atheist illusionist. He's an American illusionist. His name's uh, Penn Gillette. He's part of the duo Penn and Teller. Janelle and I actually saw him in Las Vegas in 2004. Now, he loved and respected this avowed atheist. He loved and respected the fact that a humble Christian had witnessed to him, had witnessed to him who Jesus Christ was. And basically what Penn Jillette, this avowed atheist, was getting at was if Christians really cling to the truth of the Gospel as a disciple of Jesus and they truly know what's at stake in terms of eternal life, would you really avoid witnessing to another person in case it becomes a socially awkward moment? He couldn't believe that. And we don't often hear the opinion, we hear lots of opinions of people in the church, we don't often hear the opinions of those who are outside of the uh, the church. And here's what Penn Gillette said, I want you to think about what he's saying here and I'll quote him. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Is he right? I think he's missed the point a little bit. I think we need to nuance it because as Christians... We don't witness from guilt, do we? We don't witness from a foundation of guilt. 
because we feel bad that we might be hating someone if we don't do something. As Christians, we witness from hearts saturated by God's grace, saturated and filled like that little servant girl in Israel. It's good to hear what he thinks. It's good to hear that someone outside the church has a deep respect for a Christian who will stand up for what they believe in and tell the truth because they really feel convicted by it. It's really good to hear that. But we don't do it out of guilt, friends. We do it out of love and from grace, like that little servant girl. And God used that little servant girl's witness to bring Naaman exactly in the place where he needed to be. And so standing at Elisha's house with his impressive entourage of horses and silver and gold and fine clothes that he was going to give away as gifts, Elisha's door opens up and a a messenger pops his head out and says says to Naaman, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be cleansed. I mean, Naaman expected Elisha to come out and call on the name of the Lord and then wave his hands over his skin and cure him. He expected a bit of a magical show, which of course he would pay for with thousands, hundreds of kilos of silver and gold and fine clothing. But Elisha didn't come out to meet the great man Naaman. Instead, he sent forth the word of the Lord through a humble messenger and now even more people, we've had the little Israelite girl, now even more people need to witness to Naaman as he stomps away in an absolute rage. He's a great man. Who does this prophet think he is not coming out to meet him? Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, close relationship here. Maybe they have that right to speak to him like this. My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. God, through his witnesses, delivered a double cleansing in Naaman's life. A double cleansing. He received physical and spiritual cleansing as he was drenched to his absolute core by God's grace. Naaman went down into the Jordan knowing that people thought he was a great man and yet he came out of the water declaring the greatness of God and himself as God's servants. Listen to the transformation. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, Elisha. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. This proud man who knew he was great has been completely transformed. He's a witness to the supremacy of God in all things. Naaman has been renewed in the image of God. He's a lot like actually the the person, the little girl who witnessed to him as he comes out of his water. Even Naaman's skin looks like hers. He has the skin of a young boy. Now we have a young boy and a young girl together and he's received that same confidence in the Lord. He's received new trust in God's provision for him. He's received new obedience to the Lord's commands, all gifts of absolute grace. And then Naaman makes an absolutely bizarre request. Absolutely strange. Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry 
for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other gods but the Lord. Why does Naaman want two mule loads of soil? Do you know? Could build an altar. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would he want two mule loads of dirt to take back to Syria? Strange request. But in the Bible, the gods of the nations are often represented by handmade idols with faces on them, okay? And the idea is that the gods own the land surrounding the temples that are built in their honour. And so the idol statues that people place in these Old Testament things, uh, settings actually look out, even though they have eyes of wood or stone and they can't see anything, they look out over the land that is theirs. And so if you live in the land of Syria where Rimon is the god, like Naaman did, you made sacrifices to Rimon because that god owned the land that you lived on. So you had to appease him through sacrifices and offerings. And so what does it mean when Naaman grabs soil from Israel, the land of the Lord and the land where he was healed, and then uses that soil to build an altar to the Lord in Syria? It's an absolute bold witness, isn't it? He's using soil to build an altar to the Lord back in Syria. Because remember what Naaman said, there is no other God in all the world. No other God. But do you think when Naaman takes that soil back and places it on the ground in Syria and builds an altar, do you think tongues might start wagging? Do you think it might be a powerful conversation starter with his household and with his friends and with kings who bow down to Rimon? History actually tells us that Naaman had an absolute profound influence when he returned to Syria. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. There's historical evidence outside of the Scriptures testifying to Naaman's witness to the king of Syria. A king that history tells us turned to the Lord and was transformed and renewed in the same grace that Naaman experienced in the Jordan River. Naaman started out as a man who was witnessed to by a simple, captive little Israelite servant girl and his servants, but he ended up a witness himself and had an influence on kings in his own country. Friends, you have been cleansed. You have been washed. You have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. God has united you to Jesus through water and the Word. Through those healing waters, He's cleansed you from all sin, uniting your life to the cross. There will be people in your life that think that is too simple, that there must be a calling on the Lord or more to it or a magical display or waving of hands. But you know, you know that God doesn't work according to human plans and expectations. He just doesn't. God, God's way is God's way. You've been cleansed because like the leper in the Gospel, Jesus sees your plights. He hears your cry for help and He says to you, I am willing. He says to you, I forgive you for all your flaws and your failings. He says to you, be clean. In one sense, in fact, you're all Naaman's. Every one of you is a Naaman, surpassing in beauty because of what the Lord has done in you. So I'm going to make a bold guess 
and say that you don't all want to take two mule loads of soil away from the church with you today back to your homes. But you can bear witness to God in your conversations. You can pray with your friends. You can share your thoughts on the sermon for better or worse after church. You can mentor a new Christian and catch up for coffee. You won't build an altar. I get that. But you can pray with people on the phone. You can visit someone who's sick. Maybe you can witness to children in Bible song in Sunday school or come along and share with the Head to Heart group that meets here every Monday at 4 o'clock and bear witness to them about what the Lord has been doing in your life and encourage them. Never from guilt, never, ever from guilt, but from hearts saturated by God's grace. May God grant you the privilege and the honour of witnessing to Jesus today as we gather, after church as we gather for meetings and may he grant you the privilege of pointing to Jesus like that little captive Israelite girl in your calling. Who is Jesus calling you to share his message of salvation and love with? In Jesus' name, Amen. And may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, keep your hearts and your minds safe in Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Saviour.